0: Isaiah chapter 51 tonight, and at this point, I'll just tell you that this section goes from Isaiah chapter 51, first verse, all the way into Isaiah chapter 52. We are going to be in genuine, bona fide, survey f- fashion tonight. But it's important to keep it together because it is one message and it has an important, um, important application for our situation. So let's commit our time to the Lord and we will begin to look at it together. Father, we come again to ask you to teach us tonight by your Spirit from your Word. We thank you for that Word already settled. Thank you that though heaven and earth will pass away, your Word won't pass away. Father, we thank you that those who find you, meet you in accordance with that Word are also safe eternally. So we come and ask you to teach us what that means again tonight. And we're looking to you for that, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in chapter 51 of the book of Isaiah, and a long message is is contained here. Uh, It it takes a little bit different tact than some of the other messages. Uh, It starts off by saying this, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. That's a that's a particular group of people he picks out of all the, who could be listening to him. He says, I want to say something particularly to the people who are seeking righteousness. Now, the vocabulary of this entire message is, is, very, is so close to the vocabulary of the book of Romans that it's, it's hard to kind of pass this up, and I want you to note this thing. At the very beginning when it says, you who pursue righteousness... In a sense, that you could say that those are the people who want to be right with regards to God. And that, that would be correct. Righteousness, a person is righteous when they meet the standard. That's what it means. When you have met the standard. But there is no way for a human being to meet the standard the way it needs to be. And so the word righteousness actually becomes almost a synonym for salvation in the book of, of Isaiah. Because he understands that nobody gets there on their own. And in fact, that does very much parallel what's said at the very beginning of the book of Romans. Paul says this about the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And he goes on to say that because in it. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's the power of God for salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, in listening tonight, you need to keep in mind that we are talking to, or Isaiah is talking to a very specific group. Listen to me, he says, and there's, there's a lot of passion in this, this particular section. Listen to me. You who seek righteousness, who are, or pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord. In other words, those who really want to be in a relationship with God. Now, who is he speaking to? What is it, what's going on here? Well, on your paper there, it says there's two possibilities there. I'm going to stick with the first of them because uh, of the vocabulary here, and because we have so far to go, I'm not going to take a long time to describe why. But Isaiah, in this particular case, is either speaking to the people of his own day, This is in the time of Manasseh, when the people who have had the opportunity to serve God and and to follow God under Hezekiah have wholesale turned away. Manasseh turned from God, brought in all kinds of evil. It sounds very much like our own day. He brought in occultism. He brought in all kinds of funny worship. He brought in immorality. It was a day of just unbridled immorality. It was a day, therefore, of the pursuit of pleasure instead of the pursuit of God. Along with that, he brought in forms of worship which led to the murder of children. Isn't that interesting? To the murder of children for the advancement of my own well-being. It's a difficult day. And you can imagine... And that's just the beginning of it. The lying, the cheating, and it became a day of violence. Very rapidly became a violent day because once you have unbridled desire to do your own will, you're going to bang into other people and you start having problems. Imagine what it would be for a person who really wanted to know God and you're watching all of this happen. You could be thrown off balance. You could lose your direction. And this message is given to help course-correct those who really want to know God to keep on track in the middle of it all. And that's why I believe there is a great deal of passion in, in Isaiah's way of presenting this, because it's, it's so crucial. And I think about it for our own day, because we are in a day. We're, we're not nearly as far along as it was in the day that, that Isaiah spoke, but it's moving that direction. And I would say this, if you move out of this area of the country, you're liable to find out that it's a lot farther down the line than we think. Now, the question is, it not, is not how to get back to where it was. The question is, what do I do in the middle of it? How do I live? And so deep questions come up in the hearts of these people. The first of those questions is, is the purpose of God succeeding? Now, you could you could understand that problem is it working is god really winning the the fight the day if you would and so part of what he has to say is to assure them of that the second side of of what the problem is that he's going to address here is how can i live in this what should i do when everything around me is chaos spiritually and i'm trying to seek after god so those are two questions he wants to, to answer. He's trying to calm the hearts. He is trying to assure hearts who are disturbed by the real problems that they're facing. And again, once we get caught up in the, the narrow, the right now, it's sometimes hard to see clearly. So it all comes together. So what does he have to say? What's Isaiah going to say to them? And We're going to, just, we're going to move down through this. This section is in six verses. All right, six um, stanzas, we could put it that way, all right? The first three are marked off by the term, listen to me, all right? It starts there in verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Pay attention, verse 4, to me, O my people. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, all right? The second set, all right, that's the first three stanzas. The second three stanzas start with the idea... To get, become awake. So in chapter 52 verse 9, or 51 verse 9, it says, awake, awake, put on strength, and he calls on God to do that. Then in verse 17, he's speaking to the people, says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And then in verse, and in 52, chapter 52 verse 1, starts awake, awake. Now those are the six stanzas we kind of have to work our way through. And we have to do it fairly rapidly. But there's a lot to see here. So where does he start? Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, and he says this, "Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him." Now, I want to, I want to think about those two verses first. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. All right. Now he is not Trying to, to paint a picture of Abraham here. He's simply saying this go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Remember what he's trying to calm the heart concerning is God's purpose being fulfilled? He says, go all the way back to the beginning and see what I have done. Now, in one sense, the answer to their concern is this you're still here. You are here. And that is an evidence that God has moved already. Because in the history of Israel, between the promise, which is on your paper there, the promise was given to uh, Abraham, and that day, there are at least two, but there are two extremely important miraculous events. And they form the groundwork of what he is saying to these people. The first important event occurs in the life of Abraham. God made a promise that is listed on your paper there, the promise that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. And we'll talk a little bit more about all that's involved in that in a little bit. But right now, we just want to note he made this promise. But that promise, here he is, he's one man, which the Old Testament calls the smallest of nations. Right? And it's not the smallest of nations just because there was only one man, but because of what happened in his history. God tells him he's going to have a son, and through that son, this, is, this nation's going to develop. But here was the way it actually worked out at the beginning. Sarah got older and older and older and older and passed the time of life when you have children. Abraham got older and older and older and lost his capacity for the situation. So now you have one man who has this great promise given to him. And he has to have a child and he, neither he nor his wife, have capacity for what they have been told would take place. Now we're told in the word of God that Abraham believed God. He trusted God. This isn't the great moment of faith for him, but he did trust God through this. But the emphasis that Isaiah wants to make is God miraculously did something. This nation would not have existed had not God in that extreme moment stepped in and brought to pass a birth, right? That is the beginning. Look, you wonder whether God is working today. Look at what he has done in the past. Is he capable? Yes, he is. The second event. All right, second event, which is part of this passage, which we have to note. It's also miraculous. That was where the, the family started. And that family life develops for about uh, about 200 years as they pass on down things. And you finally gets to a place where there's about 70 of them. And because of trouble in the area, they were living where Israel is today. But because of trouble there, they moved down to to Egypt. All right, they just moved there. It was a friendly move. You remember the story, it was a friendly move, but in time, as they were there longer and longer, and, and there was a change of government in Egypt, they went from a friendly situation to an oppressed situation, and finally they get to a place where they are trying, where the, the Egyptians are, are basically using them and rubbing them out. Now... If you've seen some of the great things that the Egyptians built, all right, you've seen some of those monuments they have built. Those were all built, whether you're talking about the way back with the pyramids or all those <laughs> those temples and things, they are all built with slave labor. Groups of people that they collected, oppressed, used, and disposed of. What other group do you know about in mean, your study of vast study of history? Do you know about that built those buildings for Egyptians that continue to exist? Well, they most far we know they just disappear into melt away and are, are die off. Because says look to the what God has already done. You're going to go to that particular event, and God's going to step in. And he's going to deliver. He promises deliverance, just like he had promised something to Abraham. But in exactly the same way as the family started, the nation starts. Because when God works the miracles to take them out of Egypt, he finally does a very unusual thing. He guides them into a trap. Remember that? They, all the people they say, oh, follow, the, follow the column of, of smoke and we'll all get out of here. And where did he take them in that column of smoke? He takes them to the side of a sea. And he puts them in a place where the sea kind of goes out a little bit. And they all run out onto this peninsula. And then what do you have? Egyptians behind you. And they have absolutely no way to get out of this situation. They are now trapped. They've got Egyptians behind them and water in front of them. And there is no way to get out. But what happened? Well... Moses trusted God, but the emphasis is not on Moses' faith. The emphasis is on this, that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I came and got you. God could have done it a different way, but he did it, did it that way in order to impress that people that when he wants to save, he can save, and it doesn't matter what circumstances you're in. That's, that's a tremendous point to get. He says, now look over that history. Now, you could bring up others, but those are the two that Isaiah brings up. You see, when God wants to move, he's capable of moving and doing what he wants to do to deliver. The point he's trying to make these people is, okay, it's a tough day here. But is my plan thwarted by the refusal of my people to do what I want them to do? No, it's not. I still have my plan. Now that's very important to them. I want to say there is kind of a parallel for us. I want to just note this: God is a God of history. He's a God of history. Sometimes people wonder, you know, why? Why do you have such confidence in this? Well, one of the reasons I have the confidence in this word now there's there's a number of reasons. We've got, but one of the reasons is it exists. That's a that's a historic study which we don't have time tonight. Do you know how many times people tried to destroy the message of the gospel? tried to burn away, deal with, crush those people that belonged, that wanted to follow Jesus Christ, but they didn't win. I was reminded last night, I was at church, and they were talking about humanism and the different forms of humanism, and they reminded us that one of those forms of humanism is Marxism. It's one of the various forms. And one of the characteristics of Marxism is they believed that religion was the enemy of mankind, and it was their responsibility they were they became the enemy of all religion. And then they reminded us uh, man was speaking reminded us of um, Lenin, who when he had fa- when he founded and brought in the revolution in, in Russia, made a determined effort to completely eradicate religion. In Russia, the Soviet Union has come and gone. Christianity is still in Russia. The Bible is still in Russian. And the places where he tried to oppress... Now, as I look back, just the fact that the Bible survived is an indication that God's purpose is involved with this book and it will not be overcome. That's kind of what the writer is saying here to these people. Look back. Look back. And see where you've come from. Now, when he says that, he's saying it because there's something they have to do in that particular time. He goes on in verse 3, right? He says, Indeed, the Lord will be will comfort Zion... He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in the sound of a melody. Now, he is not saying that they're going to experience any of this at that point. He says it's going to happen. Because everything I promised to Abraham, no matter what kind of problems we ran into, I have fulfilled to this point. And what I've started, I will finish. Just remember that concerning God. What he starts, he finishes. That's this big part of this passage and the encouragement of the passage. And I don't know where we are in the plan of God. I don't know. I do not know tonight what stage we're at. But I know this, that the one who started the good work in me is going to finish it. The one who started a good work in his church is going to finish it. That is true individually. That is true collectively. No group of people on this earth is going to thwart it, and that's what he's going to say, right? Because, and then he takes him back to that promise again. In the promise, there was more to it than just God was going to make Israel a great nation or make Abraham into a great nation. If that was the limit of the promise, we could say it's already been fulfilled because Israel did become a great nation. Under Solomon, it was a power, it was the most powerful entity in the area. That had already been been done. But that isn't the extent, that isn't the full extent of what he said to Abraham way back there. What else did he say? That's on the last line of, of, that's why I wanted the whole thing right there. He says, And in you, when this is all finished, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that promise was given 4000 years ago. I don't know if that that what that does to you to think that we sit here tonight as the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham 4000 years ago. But you see even in in Isaiah's day which was only about twelve hundred years after that event. Okay, that's where he is in this this thing. He still looks back here and says, There's a lot more to that promise that has not yet been fulfilled. Now you can take comfort that God who starts things will finish them despite the difficulties he's facing, and that's where he goes next in verse four. All right? He says, Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. Right? Now, the peoples there is the same thing when it said in that the, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the same vocabulary there. That makes sense. That's important to note. But it says a law is going to go forth from me. Now, the law that he's speaking about here um, <clears throat> is a description of how a person can come to him you got to keep this whole thing in mind. What was the first thing? He said, listen to me, you who desire righteousness, who seek the Lord. How can you get there? He says, there's going to come a day where there's going to be a law come forth. Now, they already had a law. Why would this come forth? This isn't a repeat of the Old Testament law. This is a a description of a way to reach the will of God so that the people who who are seeking God can reach Him. The law will go forth. And then he says this, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. Now, what is he saying there? Let me just, again, remind you of, of certain things. The justice of God would be the most, would be the last thing that you would want to know about if it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's very important. You see, the justice of God is this way. Everywhere there is sin, He has to judge it. That's justice. He has to sort out everything that is wrong, not part of what's wrong, not the majority of what's wrong, not kind of deal with it, not give it a slap on the wrist. He has to deal with everything which is wrong. Now, how could the display of His justice be light for the nations. In light of the conduct that we, we've all been involved in, because we all, I can say that of us all, because the Bible says we're all there. There's none that's righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. Not the way they should. We sin in different ways, and we sin to different degrees, but we all have sin, and that, all, that has a, a just end to it. Where is it? That God made his justice a light to the nations. And I want to go back to the book of Romans again here because this passage is, it's so intriguing to me that it, it fits so closely to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, all right? because he says he's going to make his justice a light to the nations. And I'm going to pick this up, um, in verse 24. I know it's the middle of a sentence, and, but I can't read it all, so I'm going to go, I'm going to cut in there at verse 24. It's chapter 3, verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want you to note. Whom whom God displayed publicly. He displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's very important. God has not worked out salvation in a corner. It was done publicly. the whole experience of salvation. What happened when Jesus died? What happened when he rose from the dead was done in the wide open. It wasn't made up in some, in some closet someplace. It is what ha- happened, and you can trace it down there. he says, he did that for a purpose. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time so that and here's the words that we want to note goes along with our passage tonight so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so when when Isaiah speaks of this now again I have no idea how much Isaiah understood of what he said when he was saying it but he is the evangelical prophet of the Old Testament. He, when he says there that he is going to, there's going to come a day when I will set my justice as a light for the na for the peoples, he's speaking about what the Lord's going to do. Now, just again, if you've got doubts about whether, you know, he would be thinking that way, this is chapter 51. All right? When we finish tonight, we're going to be halfway through chapter 52. After a couple of verses in chapter fifty two, we start into which classically say Isaiah fifty three, the suffering servant, but the, the suffering servant passage doesn't start in, in chapter fifty three verse one. It starts three verses before that in chapter fifty two. It's a five stanza exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he does when he gives himself as a sacrifice. Now, whether Isaiah understood that or not, this is what the passage is speaking about. God is going to put it forth. He has. He's displayed it publicly. He's displayed his justice, and that justice was worked out. When God took my sin and paid for it in the person of Jesus Christ, so that he could justly say to me, you are forgiven, you are clean, and one more step. You are justified because he could not only take away the guilt of my sin, but he could entrust me tonight, me, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ as mine. That's the justice of God, and it's available to men. It's available to us tonight. And it's important for us to note on on, as we go down through here in the passage, he's going to call people to faith. Because we have to do something about all this. He's going to finally... Say, the emphasis on on the power of God to save, but he's going to move to faith. And, and I want to underscore something we have seen all along here. We have to understand faith as, as Isaiah understood it. He did not understand the opposite of faith being just the inability to believe. Unbelief. The opposite to faith to Isaiah is pride. You see, he he views it this way. The reason people don't believe isn't because they can't believe that the Bible is true. It's because they love sin and they don't want to believe the Bible is true. It isn't because they can't see the history. They don't want to see the history. It isn't because they don't believe that the prophecies were fulfilled. It's because they don't want to to see that the prophecies are fulfilled. Jesus says the same thing when he was preaching in that famous verse, which is everywhere, when, it, when he talks about the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say he didn't send the Son to condemn the world, but through him that the world should be saved. What is the condemnation? Why are men going to be condemned? Because light is in the world and men love darkness. We have to face that fact. That that belief is a choice we make. (laughs) And and the reason people don't choose faith according to Jesus is their love for, for the darkness, which leads them to pride which says that I will not submit. Now, he's speaking to him here about how can we get there. He's talking to a group of people who do want to hear. And he says God's going to display this, and he's going to lift up, um, this is a prophecy, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples, and my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arm will judge the people's. And the coastlands, this is an important verse. And the coastlands, that's the entirety of the world beyond Israel. That's, that's his word for it. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Now, if you were here last week, there's a verse, it's right over there in chapter 50, verse 2, and it says this why? The prophet is now speaking to the rebellious nation in, this, in chapter 50. He says, Why was it? When I sent prophets to you that nobody listened. And then in a verse, which is pretty well known, all right, it says, Is my hand too short that it can't save? All right. And if you were here last week, we said that that, that is an idiom of the or it's a picture that they use in the Old Testament. That to have a short arm was not to be able to help. All right. That's just how it was pictured. And we said last week, if you wanted a dollar, then my arm's long enough. If we want a million dollars, my arm is too short. All right, you just you can't go there. I can't help you at that particular point. And so God says that, that 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 juncture is my arm too short that it can't save. Is it is that the way it is? Well, now he comes down here picking up that same vocabulary, and he says, "There's going to come a day when my arm on my arm." That is the strength of my salvation. My arm is strong enough to save. The whole world is going to wait expectantly. It's going to look to me to deliver them. All right? <clears throat> That's what's going to take place. You don't have to be concerned about the fact that a few people are not accepting God right now, even if it's the majority of the people because God's moving towards His point of goal. Now, then he picks up a picture. This is this is interesting. I mean, not this tremendous passage to me, but um, because the people knew the story behind all this, he says, now, lift, lift up your eyes. The, when he says, lift up your eyes and look at the sky, the vocabulary there is almost identical to another event in Abraham's life. There was a day in Abraham's life when he was distressed Because he was getting older and the sun wasn't there. And he wants to know if he should take action a different way. And in his strain and in his stress, God was very kind to him. He says, okay, Abram, come out here and look up at the sky and see it up there. See the the whole sky. Now, if you can count the stars that are up there, you would be able to count your descendants. Of course, you can't count the stars. And you can't count as descendants. He used that as a picture. All right. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, and when we were in Isaiah 40, the heavens are pictured here as something which is immense and settled and strong, which you can't change. That the stars are out there, and God knows each star by name, and they exist there because He causes them to exist. All right. So this is that's the picture. Now Isaiah says this: Look up at the stars. Look it up. And he says something else. He so says, when you get done serving the stars, in, in, you know the same stars that Abraham looked up at? We look up at. We're almost exactly the same parallel it would, latitude. It just It's the same sky he saw. Of course, a lot more light today, and you can't see as much of it, but it's the same stars that he was looking at because they're still there. They're virtually in the same positions that they were then. There's a little bit of movement that has changed, but not much. Real stable, right? And then he says, now look at the earth that's around you. Look at the earth. Look at what's around you. There was a promise made at Noah's day that because of God's faithfulness, he said, from here till the end, the earth is going to continue to spin and go around the sun. doesn't say it that way, but springtime and harvest will continue steadily right to the end. Right to the very end. This is all stable. So he's talking about the things out here which are stable and the things which are happening around us is stable. He says, take a good look at it. And then he has this to say. Right, For the sky will vanish like smoke. There is nothing you can see out there which won't and that's the picture he gives here, which won't suddenly just whoosh, like the steam coming off your coffee. Whoosh. Nice to look at, but it only gets up about this far. And then it dissipates and it's gone. And that's a the picture there. And he talks about the earth. He's just using pictures here. He's not trying to say this is the way it'll happen. He's just saying just like smoke disappears. It will disappear. And he looks at the earth and he says the earth around you is going to get old. Let's read it. We'll get the exact wording here. And the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. Right? This is very similar to the introductory message. Right? All flesh is grass. It's glory like the flower of the grass and the grass withers and the flower fades since it's all going to disappear. Every part of that. Every part of this and every person, how about that? but this is just, it's an encouraging message all right that's you know, that's, that's bleak, but what's he have to say? But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane Now that word that's in New American standard is wane. it can be translated a lot of different ways, but the idea is no pressure is going to stop it. That's the thought here. It's not just something that wears out just because, again, no praise of thought, is that nobody and no combination of things is going to cause my salvation ever to waver. Everything that you know on this earth wears out. You wear out. Your cars wear out. Your houses take continuous maintenance. This building takes maintenance. Everything takes maintenance. Life is a long process of maintaining things. And trying to keep them from falling apart. They're all under pressure. He says, everything will finally, men will get tired of putting it back together. That's the picture here. But he says, here's something. Those who have experienced salvation. My salvation has a characteristic to it which does not wear out and which no pressure can oppress. How about that? Now, he says that if you want to live through this day, and he's talking to a people who are in a tough day, right? Those who are seeking right, You want to do this. You have to get clear on this. Seeking righteousness is the right thing to do. Why is that? Why are you going to do that? Well, he's going to go on then to the third part of this. Listen to me, all right? Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Those who have come to know me. Here's what I want you to know. This is verse 7. A people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For moth will eat them like garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. That is the word of the living God. That's what he says. Everybody in this room is going to make a decision about that. This is the way this is the nature of the Word of God. You're either going to live in light of it or you're going to say fooey Now, the fooey pressure is going to come because there is a whole world of people out there that say it isn't so. They say that living for sexual pleasure is the way to live. They, they say that accumulating as much goods of this earth during the few minutes you have here is the way to live. They will say to you that having the authority to rule other people, they will say to you, and you can go on down the line with what they will say to you, life is all about. The living God says, life is all about knowing me. You're on the right track. Seek me. Seek righteousness, that's salvation, but seek me and all that. And you're going to make a choice. I had to make a choice. We all have to make a choice. What are we going to do about that? And you don't have, there is no middle ground on this. You either have to conclude that everything that is around us is disappearing and it's worth living past it to what God says and giving my life to the things He says to give life to or you will forever be grabbing this earth. As Mr. Carroll used to put it, you'll be like a ship which has got their, their engines running, but they never take the, the big ropes off of the dock. And their engine runs and they go nowhere because they're still tied to this earth. That's what he is saying these people. Don't let the people around you, don't let their, their words against you, their words of reviling you. These are not persecution words. This is just calling you stupid. Because this is a big intellectual conflict, right? What are you going to believe? And therefore, what are you going to commit yourself to? Which way are you going to go with your life? Jesus repeats that in the New Testament by saying it this way. If you save your life, you're going to lose it. You try to find life on this earth, but that's what everything out there is telling you to do. Save it, but you're going to lose it. That's what he says. But if you lose it, what happens? You find it. You find it. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The gospel is about, it's not just about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a necessary step. The gospel is about finding life. And you find life when you know God. Okay, that's the the first part. That's the first three sections. And we're running out of time. So we we need to, to cover quickly then what he has to say about where to go with all this. Isaiah becomes impassioned and starts to speak to people and and to to try to move them. And so he says, awake, awake, this is verse 9. But he's going to go first to the one who has to awake first because salvation has to come from God. And he calls on God. This is actually a prayer. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of God. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces and pierced the dragon. Now Rahab here is not Rahab from the story of you know, the lady Rahab. This is a picture we don't have time to go into, but it is one of the names which is used as a picture of Egypt. All this refers to Egypt. Aren't you the one that destroyed Egypt? And he goes on, Was it not you who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep, who made path, who made depths of uh, the sea a pathway? for the redeemed to cross over so that the ransom to the Lord will return and come with joyful shout to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads and they will obtain gladness and joy. And then he goes on to speak about how he'll comfort them because he is going to act. God is going to act. And that's always the first thing we need to know in the book of Isaiah. God always acts first in salvation. He makes it. He presents it. He moves people towards it. And he puts it there for people to embrace. But if he doesn't move, they aren't changed. Abraham didn't call himself and then get God to work on his behalf. The nation of Israel didn't decide it was time for them to get out of Egypt. God decided it was time and sent somebody to take them out of Egypt. All the way through the Old Testament, God moves first in saving power and then calls people to respond along with it. So that was the first step. Then he... And he goes, verse 17, because we have to go quickly here. And he really gets impassioned here. He speaks now to the people who are in the middle of a group of people who are falling away from God but want to seek after God. And he speaks to them. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. Now, the picture here is a person who not only was asleep but was asleep and was sleeping off Drunkenness. And so they're waking up after that. And he's telling them to slap yourself. Come come to. You've got to wake up because God has made a salvation. And you can't let the fact that everything around you is collapsing divert you from seeking God yourself. You see, when everything is going wrong, when the church doesn't seem to be proceeding forward, when God's plan doesn't seem to be, Winning the day, it is easy to say, what's the use? And he says, you wake up, slap yourself, do what you need to do. It's time to to go forward because God promises that if you will lay hold of it, he's going to take away all that, that judgment. All right. And again, verse 21, we'll just read. Um, this is his promise to them. They have experienced judgment. Just as, let me just say what we're talking about here. Just as you and I are experiencing the judgment of God tonight. Not the final judgment of God. But when a people turn away from God, which this culture has done, God lets them go and judgments come. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is coming upon... We're in the experience of it. It's been that way for a long time, but it's getting worse and worse, and the things that are described are coming to pass. And it would be a simple thing for people who know God to become so disturbed by what's happening in government and what's happening in, in society and what's happening in entertainment and what's happening in character and... And the educational system is, oh, it's a disaster here that you become drunk, if you would, that you become dis- you become filled up with things that have nothing to do with the eternal walk. And so he's saying, just slap yourself <laughs> here, wake up. But here's the promise of God in the middle of all that. This is to them, but it applies also to us in our circumstance. Therefore, this is verse 21, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling and the chalice of my anger, and you will never drink it again. And I won't go on with that there, but what he's saying, if you're going to seek God, even in this day, while we are experiencing around us the wrath of God here, you can be above it. You can be in a different place. You can have that lifted off of you, the pressure of it. We're still going to be living in the middle of it. But you're going to have to rouse yourself. You're going to have to stop sliding with all this. You're going to have to stop letting being bumped around by all that's out there disturb you. Tremendous passage. Anyway, back to the last section. We've got to get to the last section. All right. Verse 1 of chapter 52. Here's the last one. Awake. Now, he calms down here. He's trying to really get him to, to lay hold of those things there. But he says, awake, awake. Don't just take this out, the deliverance. That is the uh, the forgiveness here. Something more. Clothe yourself in strength. Remember where he started? Lord, arouse yourself. Awake, awake. Put on armor and strengthen your arm. All right. And he tells how he's, he can meet those people, even in a tough day. And now he comes down to there's a clothe yourself. That is us. That's the people who want to see God. Clothe yourself with strength. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments. O oh, Jerusalem, the holy city. And he talks about the fact that they will be delivered. But I want to go down to the last verse of, of this section, which is verse 6. It's the last verse which fills out the message. It kind of changes after this. And this is what he has to say. When all this takes place, therefore my people, remember this whole thing was addressed to people who wanted to know God in a difficult hour. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Here I am. I think that's a beautiful conclusion to the whole thing. Here I am. Start start off with, Hear this word, you are seeking the Lord. And when you, if you'll listen to me, if you will listen to what I'm saying, if you will to recognize what I've done in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will take hold of this word, if you will begin to realize that you, you don't want to get swayed by philosophies and pressures that push you down into your few years that you're alive on this earth, you start looking in terms of salvation, the big thing, you're going to suddenly be aware that I'm standing right there and I'm saying to you who are seeking me, Here I am. I'm right here. It's a beautiful passage. Now, he's going to to go on to speak immediately about the great sacrifice that would bring us to pass. But the question for us, really, again, I think for almost everyone in this room, nothing about what I said is new. It's not new. It's what we know about the gospel, right? It's what we've always heard about the gospel. The question isn't whether it's new to us. The question is whether or not we have ever come to that place where we have embraced that as reality and made it our way of thinking and committed ourselves to a way of life which is coordinate with that. See, way back there when Abraham, look look to the one from whom the rock was from whom you're hewn. God did wonderful things. But Abraham, seeing those wonderful things, committed himself to it. It's interesting that Abraham left Earth, that was a very high class place, and he went to be a shepherd. And he never went back. He had hard days. There were times in that place where he didn't he didn't know which end was up, but he never deserted the cause. He never went back. And we went on to other men. Get one like Moses, same thing. Moses had a lot of difficulties in life. There were times when he didn't know what to do. But he never backed up. The book of Hebrews brings those two men, particularly in front of us, to tell us they were men who lived for something bigger Abraham looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Moses endured his experience as seeing him who is unseen, because he counted what it meant to be identified with the people of God of more riches than the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Isaiah is impassioned here, because he has people that want to seek after God, but they have to know what it means. They have to know what it means. But he wants to tell them that those that, where he started this boom, or started this section, those that wait on the Lord, those that commit themselves, those that trust Him, what they gain a new strength, they gain life, and they'll run in the middle of whatever they're running through, won't be weary, or they'll mount up with wings like eagles. Then they'll run and not be weary, and they will walk. And in the hardest part of that walk, they won't give up. They won't faint. They won't collapse because of who he is. It's a tremendous thing to trust the Lord. It's a word of great encouragement to us. Oh, you'd seek the Lord. Look. Look to what what God has done throughout the ages. Let's pray. Father, we come and give you thanks for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for a word given to us so that we can understand that salvation, so that we can know what it is. Father, we thank you for the way you have preserved your word. Now, Father, we come to you for each person here. We thank you for the Spirit of God present. Reveal to us our need and move in us to embrace salvation in its fullest sense in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.